0: That's what really needs to happen. The owner needs to start thinking about how to make sure their company is the athlete. And that takes several years to prepare. And most of the time they don't they they want to do the deal, say in 2018, they step out on the bridge in twenty eighteen. They want to get it closed in twenty eighteen. Not enough time to ensure your your company's an athlete. You've got to be an athlete to get top dollar.
1: Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business Podcast. This is episode 112. Today's guest name is Hagen Rogers, and he is the managing director of Watermark Advisors, which is an investment banking firm, and they've got a really unique way of approaching mergers and acquisitions. He's got something called the bridge, and this analogy that he relates to of the bridge that there's three different phases of it. There's the preparation phase, the transaction phase, and the integration phase. So what a lot of investment bankers do is they go out and they close the deal, whether it's on the buy side or the sell side, and they're are supposed to do it for the top dollar amount with the best terms and conditions. But what it really got me jazzed up about what Hagen's doing is because he was able to relay some facts that literally 26% of the people that hire investment bankers to go sell their company don't even get to sell their company. And 42% of those companies that actually transact or close, that there was a good chunk of that purchase price that had contingencies, which is there's earnouts or there's escrows, there's somehow the money's held back and that they're tied to the integration. So Hagen has this very unique perspective from all the decades that he's been in investment banking that you have to prepare, then transact. And then the integration is where the buyer is able to capture the return on the investment that they should be striving for above and beyond their cost of capital. And that is super important as well for the seller because they want to get that money that is laying out there that is tied to contingencies. And But if you do the preparatory work, you will not have all that money on contingencies. So Hagen walks us through all the different parts of his process. And what I really liked about it is our process at GEXP Collaborative is really in line with what he's doing because you have to prepare and you want to engineer the outcome that you envision. So why not do all the preparatory work and then literally create the outcome that you want it to? And his adheres to the strategy on the actual transaction, which I think is very much in line with what we're doing. So very excited to have him on the show. A very good perspective for you, the listener who is looking at what does the other side look like? What does integration mean? What are the buyers going to be asking and what should I be thinking about today? So without further ado, here's my interview with Hagen.
0: This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing and future happiness. So your company on your timeframe to the buyer of your choice at the price you want.
1: Hagan, hey how you doing? I'm doing well, how about you, Ryan? Doing good. Looking forward to having you on the show. You have a very interesting business model that you have been bringing to the crazy world of investment banking on the uh, buy and sell side of MA. And you and I met each other at the Alliance of MA Advisors in Chicago, and you gave a presentation. And I sat there watching you going, huh, All of this would have been extremely applicable to our situation and to a lot of other people's, but a lot of the none of the listeners were probably sitting there, or they might not have come across you. So, you know, can can you just give us a background? Like, how did you get into this whole world of M and A, and how did you end up to where you are right now? Well, great question. I'll try to keep it
0: brief. I uh, when I graduated college, I started my career in corporate banking but was interacting with the investment bank. And I was intrigued by uh, the different services of investment banking from private placements to mergers and acquisitions. And so after 2 years of being a corporate analyst, I went on to business school and did an internship in M&A in Texas. And so for that whole summer, I worked on selling a company, a privately owned company with a team. And just had a fantastic experience, loved everything I learned in that internship, and went back to finish up business school knowing this is what I wanted to do. So, for five years, I was with what was Wachovia's investment bank and was in Charlotte, Atlanta. And uh, when the merger happened with First Union, I moved, uh, or I was being asked to move back to Charlotte. But I was in investment grade debt, which is a, a service for really large public companies like a Walmart, issue corporate bonds. And I, I had, for the first two and a half years, been doing M&A on an origination function. So helping the bank find deals and then bring them over into the product group and then help with the execution from time to time. And I missed that. So I had asked to get back over to this world when we got bought essentially by First Union. I left the bank uh, because I wasn't happy in the product group uh, I was in. And so I moved back to my hometown of Greenville, South Carolina and launched what is now Watermark Advisors. And that was 16 years ago. And did that with the help of uh, the managing director from Wachovia's practice, which uh, he was an ex-Solomon Brothers M&A banker. And so I could not have had a better partner for the first 8 years of Watermark. He basically oversaw and, and mentored me further in the role of, of doing deals. I had the experience of finding and winning the deals, but but doing the deals uh, it's a whole different science or art, we'll say. <laughs> and uh, so, for eight years, Watermark looked—we're a boutique M&A firm. We do sell-side, buy-side M&A, also private capital raises. We're a Finra member, and we looked like everybody else. But uh, leading up to when uh, or what I shared in Chicago a couple of months ago, after years of doing this—16 uh, years to be exact. I've discovered there's some real problems with M&A that the clients experience, not necessarily that the service providers experience, but the clients, both on the sell side and buy side. So what I've done over the past several years is is completely revamp how I do M&A. And that forced me to change actually my business model, which may be less interesting than talking about what changed from a service perspective and why is that why is that relevant to the user of M and A, whether you're selling a company or buying a company, Uh, and that's what I presented in Chicago at uh, the meeting where you met me. So let's,
1: which you had so many valid points, and let's set some context for the listeners. Like so. Sixteen years of doing this, and you've been in the the M world a lot. And you know, what were some of the biggest problems that you saw? Like, you, like you'd said, like you know, you and I right before we jump on the call, it's the, it's not that the the market's not fixing this. But it, there's there's this big gaping hole, and there's prob- I mean, I'm assuming you dealt with lots of headaches. So maybe describe like what were some of the you know the headaches that you experienced, and what are some of the big problems that you see?
0: Great. I'll use a metaphor that I is when I sit down with a potential client. I have this M and A simulation board, which is a a board that uh, I have literally blocks on this board that visual. It helps visually understand the problems, understand where the deals create challenges for the client. So, let me first speak to the buy side, uh, and I'll share this pretty quickly, and then focus on the sell side. Strategic buyers. Uh, so I'm not talking about private equity. Private equity has mastered the process of of M and A. And so let's focus just on operating companies that are not in the business of doing M and A, but they they need to execute mergers and acquisitions from time to time to execute a strategy to grow their company.
1: Well, and and actually, like, hey, let me interject for a sec because you know, as you go into this too, I think it's super important for the listeners to understand the buy side's motives too and what means success for them. So, I know a lot of the listeners are entrepreneurs that are going to eventually end up selling, but like, it's so important because, and I I think that in the marketplace, there's there's a lot more M and A ramping up because in order to continue to grow or to evolve and innovate with different products and services, we're getting to so I think you, you alluded to a great point which I think you're gonna to get to is that they don't do this all the time <laughs> so like Correct. they're getting forced into it so I think what you're about to say is an important note for the listeners to to really understand that there's reasons behind this and then there's a lot of challenges that you're gonna to allude to
0: great so uh, acquirers do M&A for, for various reasons and if you boil it down to several kind of general reasons They're doing it to execute a strategy whereby they cannot organically grow or expand into the areas of business they need to expand and create products and services quickly enough by themselves. Um, And so they acquire as opposed to building it. Um, And so whether it's market expansion or product expansion or or R&D, Acquiring R and D as opposed to developing R and D; those are reasons why strategic acquirers do M and A, but they have really several key problems when they metaphorically walk across the M A bridge, and that's the metaphor I use on this board. The problems are that the problems show up in the results when they step off of the bridge. Seventy to eighty percent of the time, they do not create a return on their investment that is at a hurdle rate or above a hurdle rate, and most of the time it's not even in the delta, what we call the hurdle rate delta, between at the bottom of, imagine a line, a horizontal line, and that, let's say that hurdle rate is 12%, go down about 500 basis points, uh, down to 7%, and maybe that's their cost of capital or cost of doing the deal. They're not even showing up in that delta between the 7 and 12%. They're hovering around the cost of capital, which means it's a wash. They're not actually creating financial value from doing acquisitions most of the time. And much not only are they not creating value, they also may not be creating a strategic success for their acquisitions. So you want, as an acquirer, to do acquisitions to where... It's a strategic and financial success. And what I'm saying is studies show time after time, the return or the financial measure is not happening for that strategic acquirer. Why? It's because they make fumbles. They cross the bridge and they have fumbles and the fumbles happen in three areas, three phases, as I call it, the preparation phase, the transaction phase, the integration phase, which by the way, is the same three phases that sellers cross when they do M&A, when they sell their company. They cross the same three phases, preparation, transaction, integration, but the seller problems are different. Uh, And I'll cite the problems in one particular study, but this is going to be indicative of of what happens to sellers year after year. Looking at Pepperdine University's uh, 2018 Private Capital Market Study. It comes out once a year, and it's very thorough. Uh, They surveyed investment bankers who led M and A deals on the sell side. So we're just thinking about investment banker led deals. Twenty six percent of the time, that investment banker was not able to sell the company that they were hired to sell. So that owner goes out on the bridge. They, to a varying degree, expose their trade secrets, uh, Mm -hmm. market information to potential buyers, 26% of the time. And maybe more concerning is that 42% of the time uh, of those companies that did sell last year, 42% of the time, the way that deal got done was with what are called contingency fees. So let me give you a simple example of that. Let's say that you sold your company for $10 million. The, uh, the buyer, to get the deal done, the buyer's not willing to pay you 10 million in cash. They're willing to pay you 7 million in cash. And they'll structure what either an on-out or s- seller debt, seller notes, and, and for that 3 million in incremental value. You don't get that unless certain things happen with the company after it's out of your control. And I can tell you after being in this business. For 21 years in M&A and investment banking, it doesn't typically materialize completely, meaning that seller doesn't cap the full value. So top dollar is not happening for the seller a majority of the time.
1: Well, and like, I mean, there's been so many people and stories about Earnout, burnout that you're not going to hit it i mean all the things that it, you know you tell me the price i'll tell you the terms because that's this is where all the hair comes out and you know what in that i think you're going to probably kind of get into this but what are the ways you know like and maybe this is kind of you, you your your bridge but like the ways of mitigating that that earnout or that the contingencies because they didn't do a lot of things right or there's risk coming from the buy side and you know that's where we've talked on the podcast before about value drivers are the opposite of the discount reasons on the buy side. Mm-hmm. So you know is there is is that kind of what you're going through into this bridge? Maybe you want to kind of you've given this whole overarching, like, Yeah, there's a lot of problems. No one's really ready to be making sure that these work, and it's a lot. Of, I mean. Hagen, do you think it's a lot of people playing the short-term game more than it is anything else, or just trying to get the deal done?
0: There are two. Uh, I'll think specifically about sell side. Uh, there, there, are several problems that are fundamental problems with the owner, the seller, when they sell their company. Uh, they believe most often that understanding their company and running their company well and their company doing well is enough that they can... Because as we know, owners are very busy people, they lead complicated lives, and, and it's hard to own and run a company, much less a successful company. So they believe when they step on the bridge that that's enough, that they've they've they have a profitable company, but what they don't realize is that the market is looking for athletes metaphorically Hmm. and, and while their company may be financially healthy, that doesn't mean that their company is an athlete or even more an elite athlete. So the market is looking for elite athletes. And so what often happens is that owner talks to a few trusted confidants in their sphere of influence. Uh, centers of influence and they ask, who should I talk to about selling my company? I want to keep this very confidential. They talk typically to an investment banker. Maybe that uh, banker is with, they They get referred to a banker, but that firm, that banker is part of a boutique firm. What we call boutique firms are small specialized firms or large brand name firms. Those firms as smart as the investment bankers are, their goal is to get on the bridge with their client and cross the bridge in the most efficient manner possible and make the most money while they're on the bridge. Um, and they do that through success fees as, as that's how our, my business uh, compensation works. You get some level of a retainer fee and then you get a large success fee when you close the deal. But guess what? That client is still on the bridge. The deal's closed, but most of the time that seller, owner has the often a, can be the most challenging part of the bridge ahead, which is the integration phase. And if they have contingency fees and they're still tied to the company financially and maybe even operationally, they have a very difficult road, but the investment banker is done, they've exited, they help structure the deal, but they're not incented to 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 the top dollar, you know they're going to put in contingency fees, which is a way to get the deal done, but it's not really in the best interest of the seller, the client. So um, the the kind of the root problem here is that owner hasn't truly prepared himself or herself for walking across the bridge, and and neither has that owner really prepared their company to be quote unquote, the athlete. And, and that's what really needs to happen. The owner needs to start thinking about how to make sure their company is the athlete. And that takes several years to prepare. And most of the time they don't, they, they want to do the deal, say in 2018, they step out on the bridge in 2018, they want to get it closed in 2018, not enough time to ensure your, your company's an athlete. You've got to be an athlete to get top dollar.
1: That is well said, and I think you gave some really cool. I love the analogy of the bridge. <laughs> I mean, because it, it's really what it is you're stepping it out, and it. You know, some people call it the deal train, but I think the bridge is a way better analogy because you're you're going across into uncharted territory, and there's a there's a power dynamic shift, there's a change in ownership sh- uh, shift, all these things are shifting and. Um, uh, you know, can Hagen, can you walk us through the preparation transaction and integration phases and your whole kind of thought process behind the bridge and what's included in all these and maybe, yes. you know, with some context too, is that, you know, I think, you know, we've had, we had Mark Jordan, um, on the show who he it was an investment maker that very clearly went through kind of the whole process of taking a company to market. That's a little bit, that's different than how you've laid it out too. So, you know, we don't have to maybe spend as much time on the first part. But I think it's great context that leads up into the integration. And actually, I love how you have both the buy side and the sell side because it's the same bridge. It's the exact same thing. The same bridge. Yes.
0: Same bridge, same three phases, different steps on the bridge though. So I'll quickly summarize the bridge for sellers. When you decide to sell your company, you step out on the bridge. There's really When I talk about preparation, there's the technical side of preparation, which is what some investment bankers will do some of those steps, but there's some that are missing. And, and um, But then there's a whole element that really is not being done well in the marketplace that will, if you do it well, it will set up success if you run the process well of crossing the bridge. And that is, what does it mean to be an athlete? And I say there are eight different areas that you need to look at, and this is what we do with the client. We'll look at with the client at these eight areas and identify. Because I've been doing this for over two decades now, while I'm not an expert in how to fix the challenges, and that's where I bring in a collaborative group of partners to help with that. It, I can identify the where, where they're not a top athlete or elite athlete. So those eight areas are strategy, and market positioning, and those really go together, people, process, financial results, culture, innovation, momentum. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in. It doesn't matter if you're a large or uh, small company. These are the 8 areas that in my experience, I can boil it down to these 8 areas and say, okay, how much of an athlete is this company? and I will, and strategy is the most important, uh, it, strategy is the heart of health of the athlete. It's the heart. It's got to be top shape. That is about business model. It's about vision. It's about, uh, the, the leadership and, 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 and how you're executing strategy. And it's it, all of those things. And that's a you know, for, for business owners, we're not strategy experts. We we developed a product and service, we built a business around it, and we've been successful. But a top athlete revisits the business model that really protects those products and services every year. And they're 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 tweaking it. They're tweaking it where they when and where they have to. So market positioning is is uh, where how are you positioning the market to have competitive advantage and win the client the client's dollar, let's say, uh, over your competition. And, and so those two things go together. If those are very healthy, then i look at people and processes. People from leadership to your teams and how you hire, how you fire, how you compensate, what processes run the company, how many processes do you have, and how do you advance those processes that the more uh, and processes for processes' sake are not what I'm talking about. It's processes that execute the strategy week in week out most efficiently, and having people that can do that. When you have those two things really behind the strategy, you've got you've got the makings of an athlete and it shows up in your financial results you want to have profitability margins that are at par really ideally better than the average company in your marketplace. If you're not uh, doing that, why not? What, where are you off? Culture is what I say, the, the the organization of business decision-making inside a company that is designed to execute the most efficient way to run the strategy. So I'm using a lot of lingo here in business terms, but all these are important to, to, Grasp. Let me pause and see what questions you have.
1: Well, I, I think it's you know, I think the more and more everybody hears about these, you know, their value drivers or growth drivers, or it's all the stuff that makes it a machine. You know, I always go back yes. to transferable EBITDA or cash flow, right? So, I mean, this is a machine that is no longer just a really high-paying, high-risk job, and like you know, I like the analogy of the, of the athlete as well. And I, I think it's you know. What do you call them the value drivers, wherever, wherever they're coming from is they're making, they're in, in, intentional, right? And I think, you know, what are yours? What are, I mean, with the 21 years, again, that you've been doing this and a lot of the, you know, I'm assuming you got a lot, a lot of stories, but you can't walk on the bridge and not have this stuff figured out because you can't fix this stuff overnight. I mean, I think it helps with the negotiation, knowing where your big weaknesses are going to be and how those are going to be torn apart in due diligence or the, the Q&A part, but like you can't fix this stuff overnight at all.
0: Correct that's why you really need to be thinking about if you want to exit your ownership of your company, it's more than just hiring the right person to sell your company and doing evaluation and then getting a book together. Those are, those are important steps, but much more important is, is your company an athlete? Is it a top athlete? And, and where you need to work on those, any of those eight areas, you have time to do it and you have, People to help you do it because you know your business, but we're not—you know—a a CEO and a president of a company. That doesn't mean they're outstanding at all these areas, and, and so having advisors come in and and give you tools to use—that's what my model's about—is a collaborative, comprehensive approach. So I want to help them identify these problems early, so they can and I can help them introduce them to who I believe are the best people that can can work with them and and then get that company in tip-top shape and then we can think about the mechanics of crossing the bridge the m&a bridge
1: well and this is what i'm super interested in kind of tying this because i think you know what we work with our clients on and i and i tell everybody even on the, the listeners is that like so you can do all these eight you know these eight drivers or that you're calling them or the, the athlete you know the athlete characteristics but it's you know, going towards, and I want to, I think there's a lot of correlation to your integration. Knowing, like, what's your ide- ideal exit? Is it PE? Is it a strategic competitor up up and down the stream of your supply chain? Because all of these things and what you do intentionally should have some sort of target towards that ideal buyer. Because how you launch new products or strategies or your business model, the culture might have a different you know, angle or different path based on all the different buyers, which will impact the integration, right? Because I mean, if someone has these certain things, you're not, you might not need to do them because you're going to be a bolt on or whatever. I mean, I think, you know, there has to be a lot of reverse engineering into the outcome that you want.
0: That's a great point. Um, You know, I, I, to, to that point, I say my advice to the client is on the technical side of preparation, it's let's, come, let's build a buyer list now well before we market the company. And so you know the, the list of companies you'd like to approach when the time is right. And you actually start to build connectivity with those buyers. Not that you sit down with them and say, Hey, I'm thinking about selling my company in a few years. But you build rapport with them. Let's say at trade shows, conferences, you, you intentionally run into them or, or schedule time to meet with them just to talk business, just to understand how they think about the world. And it helps you when you are on the bridge and this, you are on the bridge d- doing that I say. Um, but when you move into the transaction phase, you have a better sense of, of who the top prospected buyers are going to be and by building that buyer list early and, and being intentional about the approaches. So to that end, the technical side of preparation, moving away from those eight areas, I say, you do get evaluation early. You do get educated on what it looks like to cross the bridge. We offer that, we help, we'll kind of tell them about the bridge and what to expect. I say, build that offering memorandum book early so that you really, you tie that with the projections you're building out a projection model that aligns with strategy and where you want to take your company. And you build that offering memorandum, which is the written story behind the numbers and they go together so that you're really living this. You're living what you're going to share to potential buyers when you're in the, the deal phase. You, you've been living it and you've been, you've been steering your company towards a very defined vision with competitive advantages and, and you have certain buyers in mind, maybe not one, but you have a group of buyers in mind that should want this company if and when it goes on the market. And uh, so you even build out your virtual data room early. So did you get some of these technical things knocked out way before the transaction phase? So you can, it frees you up to really focus on really running the business well when you're in the transaction phase and you've gotten some of these things that really kind of, uh, are just a problematic for the owner to have to spend so much time on the, the the virtual data room, data gathering of all the docs. You've gotten that done already And, and do that in the preparation phase you've got that wealth manager at the table and they're collaborating with the investment banker we're we're working together to figure out what type of structure is going to work best for you best for your wealth planning and so that allows you to move into that transaction phase with a lot of momentum and you can really then kind of sit back and time the market to the best that you can so you're waiting for the market to to head towards a peak or high And you are the athlete, when you combine those two, when you are the top athlete, and then you're combining that with market timing, and you have uh, the strategy down and that story that you're going to share with potential buyers who you've already identified, you're going to get top dollar or you're heading towards that great possibility that you're going to get top dollar.
1: Top dollar and no contingency fees. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs>
0: right? That is the goal. That is the goal. And so uh, we that, that in our mind defines top dollar. When you can get a high valuation, when you've, you've sold it to a, a, a buyer that you really admire, and you know they're going to steward this company well after they own it, and you get top dollar all cash deal, that's the ideal experience for being on the bridge, and I'm I'm speaking to the ideal scenario, and that's where I think the business owner should shoot for. Because I mean, face it, they put their lives into building these companies, and their life maybe for the last five years, ten years, or fifty years, or maybe it's been intergenerational. Um, why not go for the top, uh, the best experience? Because so many people just don't get it; they don't get that.
1: A lot of people don't, and it, it's it. it it's unfortunate. Like you said, though, even the 42% of the ones that actually close. So going into that so that transaction, because I like the transaction integration is, I think, even where you have more of your special sauce and how you articulate this. So is the transaction pretty much the normal status quo and how you actually go through with the actual deal? And then how does that relate to the bridge? And then how does that tie into the integration piece?
0: Great, great question. And so, yes, the transaction phase, um, a lot of the the unique attribute of the the, the a bridge happens in the before and the after the preparation phase and the integration phase in the transaction phase if we've done our work well we're gonna we're gonna run that process most of the time like most other investment banks which is a an auction process a targeted auction um, we're gonna approach uh, a group of buyers that creates leverage uh, in a process for you and, and while there are unique circumstances when a negotiated sell with one buyer makes sense most of the time i think it makes more sense to to run a broad process so that's about the investment banker approaching the buyers sharing the information with the buyers receiving the indication letters the management meeting in my opinion is is probably the most important part of that process and i've learned that by experience that that's when the company's on stage and that's when you really have the best opportunity to shine and, and where the buyers, you want the buyers to leave that meeting with the seller and probably a couple people from the sellers management team. They walk out of the room, they say, we have to have this company. We hit, Mm -hmm. you want that. And you, so, so everything builds up to that one meeting and you want that meeting to be uh, there's a there's an emotional element to that meeting where when you're telling your story the the investable story of why this company is uh, going to be has a very bright future. That's the time to do it, and so all of that work, that preparation work, goes into that that uh, that, that one day, half day experience with the buyer, and if done well. It just creates this momentum for the latter half of the transaction phase, so the letter of intent, exclusivity, due diligence, uh, negotiating and closing documents, and closing that 's not to say that is all easy to do, but if you 've done your work really well in the preparation phase, uh, which is not many people fully do that uh, you 've really you 've set yourself up to just run the company well. And outperform your numbers during the transaction phase. So that tees up uh, the integration. And so we actually have advisors and partnerships that we have because integration for sellers is actually very important. And you would say, why? You're not, you know, you sold your company because of those reasons I described earlier. 42% of the time, you're still tied to the performance of the company you just sold to get your top dollar. And you're most likely going to be a part of the transition for some period of time. So we actually have integration uh, advisors that most of the time do sell side or buy side work, work with the the seller owner to really be their coach and help them as they go through week to week of this very new world of that you're no longer in control they're they're part of a larger entity now, and yet it really matters what happens to this company they just sold. So we have these integration experts that can help the seller understand and get in the mind of the buyer, and and sometimes talk them down from kind of ledges, emotional ledges, and <laughs> and feeling like they're about to jump off a bridge because they're so frustrated and 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 feel trapped. They feel trapped. They want to move on they want to move on to the next part of their lives and yet they still have to see this through to the end. And so that end can be one year, two years, three years or more after they close the deal. We want to be there with them. And so this model that I'm talking about, watermark has we're not done until we step off the bridge with the client and can measure, did the client get full purchase price or top dollar capture? And was the, the was it a successful handoff? And that's gonna if they get both of those, that's the best I think you can do while on the bridge. And you should walk away very satisfied that um, you did you did not uh, uh, you know your absolute best and your company's now in great hands.
1: Hopefully with a buyer that you admire. All right. So based on what you, I totally agree with what you're saying on the on the the top dollar and the good handoff. And and I and I think you know. A lot of these owners and and a lot of listeners, and I would never have understood it until we went through. But like, what do you mean by integration, right? So there's like, okay, the, the emotional things that you alluded to, hundred percent, very real, very valid. That trapped mental feeling that you feel when you're no longer in control is super real, and that takes a lot of, lot of mental preparatory work, and or you just have to go through it. But like, you know, when when I had when I had saw, and I even talked about our integration with like the AP and the AR and collecting AR and you know paying the bill like but like specifically what integration stuff and what is the biggest mistakes and blowups that you see in this where people don't get the capture the 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 buyer doesn't get their ROI and the seller gets screwed or gets you know there's just all of this muddied water especially when people don't do it all the time so what, and you get specific stories that you, I mean, uh, that are yes. common, common yeah. themes
0: okay so integration uh, if I put my buyer hat on that is probably 50 percent of failure with MA happens in the integration phase so what you have to realize as the seller is that integration is the hardest part of the mA bridge for the buyer so just knowing that and being the uh, that the recipient of of that problem for the buyer, you're going to be in the middle of the storm or on the edge of the storm as it happens. So the storm typically starts day one after the close of the deal and the buyer hasn't planned integration well. So you just sold your company, all the people who've been loyal to you, they learn possibly and likely many of them for the first time that you just sold the company and they feel betrayed. They feel like you you kept this a secret from them and now their job is at risk. They don't know who the buyer is. They don't know what their future is. And until you or the buyer actually solves that question, answers that question for the employees, they are paralyzed. They're paralyzed for some period of time. And so buyers, infrequent buyers especially, don't do a good job of planning integration, and therefore, um, you know that first month, two months is can be very disruptive. When they, when your employees are not doing their day to day job to the level they had been doing, they're partially paralyzed. The company starts to suffer. You start to see your competitors try to poach not only your clients but your best people. And they, they plant these seeds of doubt, like, uh, you know, it's not going to be the same going forward. Don't you want to explore a better place to work? And they already are, they're kind of, the competitors are playing to that emotional angst <laughs> that, so, that the employees right. have. And, and so they, they, they poach. And, uh, so integration is really a combination of several things. It's executing what, what we call playbook. The playbook is the buyer's playbook for how to execute integration. That playbook is, is a series of processes to integrate people processes, leadership into the buyer's organization. And it is a, it's a change management process. It's very challenging to do. It's very time consuming and the buyer really the best buyers, do it well because they know that the importance of integrating the people, the processes, culture, uh, authority. Do you keep the leadership team that ran the seller company? Do you continue to empower them with the authority they had or do you strip it away? Do you consolidate processes? Do you change the processes or do you keep them the same? Do you, um, close down certain operations? Do you relocate people? All those things for seller, employers, employees, it's a tough time. So as the owner of that company you just sold, you're going to experience that. And, and, and you, you're typically... Let's call you... You wear this hat of ambassador, try to smooth out all the problems that happen. In the integration. And you want to make sure your company that you just sold is really performing well because you still have money tied up in this. So, there now you can see the problem of integration or the the real uh, just troubling time that can be for the seller who's exhausted. They just, they just went through a very trying time.
1: Well, right. Yeah. There's so it, it, there's such a blend of emotions and like actual emotions, but then there's financial ramifications of those emotions. And like, and you you know, go going and speaking from my own experience and watching multiple clients go through it, it's like you know what I see a lot of good leaders do, Hagen, is like good leaders provide clear, transparent visions and consistency to make an environment, a working environment safe for people, right? Which is why they get buy-in from their employees and they have a bunch of people that literally love them and love where they're working. And then the moment that you take that all away and then you smash two groups of people together, <laughs> I mean, like it, you're bound to have an absolute shit storm. And like, I mean, I, I, it was very interesting because I had like, you know, in on the manage it set of our old business, like we had, you know, it engineers are impossible to find because they're super high qualified, zero percent unemployment. And by the way, the ones that can actually talk to people are literally like you know unicorns. <laughs> so right, my my one of mine, uh, he was amazing. We, we took him forever to find him. He got calls all day long from recruiters, right? Mm-hmm. And he said he how I don't remember how Hagen he worded it to me, but he said, "I never once picked up the phone." until you sold the company hmm. and so then here's this guy that we were paying him like in the 90s and he's like all of a sudden the culture changed my team changed my day-to-day activities changed and i was like hmm, i wonder what else is out there picked up the phone he's getting you know he's getting paid over twice that now somewhere hmm. else but like this it's this whole doubt in this whole like not knowing that just i think screws everything up yes
0: you have to solve that that fundamental question that your key employees have, what about me? Until you answer that as a buyer and and the seller owner again is tied to this success, you have problems because the the top employees don't know if they will be successful. Uh, that they, they start to question their confidence in the new environment. They start to it's for the best of them, There's typically a a chipping of a chipping away of some of your confidence going through an integration because there's just so much uncertainty. So bring it back. Let's step back and you know we're talking about the last phase here of the bridge. But what I'm saying is is that to be successful as the seller, it is so much about preparation and how to do the transaction phase well and then how to do integration phase well you've got to think holistically not just about the deal or trying to get the deal done in the next few months it's how do i walk across this bridge and get to the best outcome uh because this is not going to be easy and I, i you know that's why we believe a collaborative comprehensive approach is a better approach and we think it's it's the better way to do it not just try to quickly, you know, very effectively help the client and and minimize your time as an advisor on the bridge, but it's really more of a relationship and counsel across the bridge.
1: Because it's like I mean, the whole point, you know, like when I, you know, the whole point of taking all the risks as an entrepreneur is because you want control and you're willing to deal with a crazy amount of risk in order to have that kind of control. And, you don't know what you're, it's like not being aware of all of these things. You know, you know, when you look at all the different parts of the phases and all the different things that are, I mean, you, you can't engineer your outcome if you don't know what you should be focusing on. Correct. <laughs> and what you'd be spent time looking at versus just going, hey, I know I want to sell. I mean, I, honestly, like I, I get my heart breaks for these people I, that call and like, hey, I want to sell my company in six months. I'm like, you're so effed. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to even talk them off because literally they're on the bridge, right? They're on the bridge with no No advisors and there's no other side of the bridge is broken. And it's like going off of your athlete story. It's interesting where like, if you think about an athlete or it's, so it's the same bridge, it's the same race, but can you imagine trying to run a 400 with no exercise, no practice, and then you go go. and then you throw up, you don't win. And the afterwards horrible Versus, it literally should be almost like a non-event, right? I mean, you should literally just go run it. And then it's literally just like another practice round, right?
0: Right. And that's, that's where I challenge the seller owner the most is, you know, you know that everything in life to, to be successful, it is about preparation why are you willing to forego that wisdom now in this most important transaction which is and and i think that the false thinking that happens is my company's doing well i I, you know they get a valuation and they think that's enough but it's not there's more if to, to to really excel you've got to be a top athlete as a company and you've got to I believe with the technical side, do some of these steps in a preparation phase so that when you move into the transaction you it's kind of coasting it's not easy, but you're coasting through those technical steps it's that, like
1: a non event i mean yes
0: exactly exactly, and therefore, and then to have some coaching in the integration too to really help you understand this kind of crazy time uh that unfolds after you sell your company uh it really. I think it, you can win. You can win at M and A, and then you can help others realize how important it is to really think holistically about the
1: process. Well, it's interesting too, and, I, and I, talking about the non-event and actually tie, and tying this into you know our process too, because I think we have very similar processes but different approaches. And what I find interesting is that we actually do on-site interviews with all the key executives and any you know, investors or stakeholders. Kind of talking about literally, how do we engineer the ideal outcome? And the people is the biggest part. So now all of a sudden, you get buy into the you know becoming an athlete with the executive team. And you know what do you see? I mean, I, I can only imagine with with the decades of experience. Like, where all of a sudden, you know, your top executives that are super important when they get blindsided. Because I remember doing it with mine. We sold to our mortal competitor. Which happened to be an amazing company, obviously, because they were good competitors. But you know the betrayal that they saw. I can't imagine if they would have been bought into how this all works. I mean, what are ways that you see, you know, people right, like correctly bring the the people in the fold?
0: Well, that's a great question.
1: Um, you know,
0: it has to start top down, and typically the executive levels of integration are where the biggest battles happen. It's, it's not at the, the mid-level management or, or the, the team members of mid-level management. The biggest problems really come from the executive because you're, you're changing their world, their level of authority. So imagine the buyer integration plan may be to um, increase the role of particular employees' duties. Imagine that angst, the angst of now you' you've had a full plate, but now we're empowering you to do more. Uh, and and so imagine they now have more on their shoulders than before. That's unnerving. But also equally unnerving, maybe even more, is stripping away of authority. Uh, with the executives, so when that happens, and and you know that uncertainty of what does that mean for me, my family, my future, my career, you really uh, kind of chip away at their confidence. And so, you know, as I think about different experiences, I actually go back to one of my own, which was when First Union literally bought Wachovia. And the process by which First Union integrated Wachovia was top down. And uh, you started to see executives that you uh, admired. It was great to see the ones you admired get new positions in the combined entity. And this was really essentially a merger, uh, not an acquisition, because these are two back, you know, this is way back in the year 2001 so this is you know a lifetime ago for today's world um but you you saw you saw you know the leadership start to fill and then it started coming down to your level and i can tell you the day that it was just such an in, impersonal process by which they <laughs> they you know you you felt like you're part of this kind of cog machine you know you're flown to Charlotte to meet with your potential new team members and they spent 15 minutes with you. they're like really, a
1: prearranged marriage. <laughs>
0: yeah, but but it's you know they're not really focused on you. They're they're staring at their computer while they're trying to talk to you. And it's like, okay, do I really like this person? Do I want to? <laughs> do I want to move to to work for this person? And and you meet your future boss who doesn't really live in Charlotte. They live in Utah, and they fly in and out of Charlotte every week for four days. And like, how? What kind of boss is that going to be that they don't even live in charlotte so you start to and and just the actual day where we were hired i tell this story a lot they um the executives came down on our floor and i was on a big bond trading floor at wachovia in atlanta so everybody saw everybody and it was kind of like a you know bond trader bond trading is crazy anyway crazy fun people but um you know the, the the executives who you had probably shaken their hand once, kind of marched in, and it was like a march back to this office. And one by one, they called us back to the office. And guess who was first? Me. And they called me back. Randomly picked me first to go back. And I did get an offer. And but they said you have to go back and sit at your desk, and you can't say a word. You can't look at anybody else. You can't kind of put any kind of sign that you got an offer or not until we've, we've entered until we brought everybody back and either given them a job or not. So it was very awkward to walk back and everybody's staring at you, like looking for some signal. Did I get hired or not? (laughs) And I had to have this stone face to sit down and (laughs) and just kind of stare at my computer. And I can tell you just, it's set for a really, unfortunately a, a bad tone that the experience of either getting hired, but then your friends did not get hired. And, you know, just the awkwardness of that process was just, it, it, it really, I'm glad I went through it though, because it makes me w- want to work that much harder for clients to help them through bringing the right advisors to help them through integration, because it is a very unsettling time uh, for everybody, for everybody involved. You can't uh, deny that.
1: Well, then, if you think to you know, when you have that layer, which, by the way, I think the people part of it—I mean—and I had Jennifer from Day One Consulting. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Um, she does. She focuses on the human part of this, so it'd be an interesting. I'll, I'll have to do an intro now to you guys. But like, there's there's the people thing, which I think is a huge percentage of the the challenges of this, and just clear expectations and being able to describe all this stuff like grownups. But then it's the it think about the lost data in when people get manipulative or they become toxic or they go away and you fire them. And, you know, all of a sudden you didn't know that there was a bill out there that was, you know, a payable that didn't get paid or they, this mm. relationship or this vendor and all that stuff, the tentacles go deep and wide. And when you sour the people part, I think it just trickles into all of it. I mean, like you can't, and that's where I think that the, the financial ramifications are pretty great and now you think about
0: it's easy to see uh how buyers especially strategic buyers don't create that that significant ROI the return on investment yep. it's so easy to pay this top dollar but then kind of week to week begin to erode by your decisions and not doing integration well you start to erode that value and before you know it you've wrecked a company and you've you've uh, You've all those millions you pay and the resources to get a deal done don't matter. You've lost it. You've 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 wrecked uh, uh, an investment essentially, and it's easy to do.
1: I know. Hagen, have you heard of this uh, book called uh, "Capitalism Without Capital"? No, I've not. It's really, really fascinating. Um, Bill Gates wrote an, a LinkedIn blog article about it. And then there was like 25,000 comments on it or something like that. And um, it just talks about like the balance sheets of these companies these days are there's more intangibles than there are tangibles. And mm-hmm. the intangibles are people, processes, culture, all this stuff. And really, and this is just totally my my own two cents and opinion about it. But it, I mean, companies are living organisms of people, right? And so right. if you think about... Like trying to digest and merge two living organisms like that, you have to, in order to capture that value, because you might have $2 million in free cash flow, but it's coming out of an organism, essentially, right? With <laughs> right. this people and culture. So you have to literally understand how that thing lives and breathes in order to absorb it to keep that cash flow. Otherwise, you're totally screwed and you're just playing the short game in the Wall Street game and you're never going to be able to, to get it. But it's a super interesting book because that's, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm articulating as a living organ organism or
0: organism you know, it, kind of to speak to the, you know, that makes me think of the, um, inter- mar- A M&A is like a marriage. Well, it really is not. When you think about it, marriage is just between two people who really want to be together. <laughs> MA is about potentially thousands of people who are disrupted because of this transaction. And they really. Day one, they're they're the most hesitant to walk through the door of the company and interact with their quote unquote spouse. Um, it, it's the opposite of marriage. It's it's it's, uh, it's a very troubling transaction. So I think that kind of the the kind of rosy colored glasses of M A's like marriage is
1: is really not telling it like it really is. Well, it's ecosystems, right? It's a complex. You know, complex organism. Like I said, and then you have to think about all the different facets. And then that—that's what I think is very interesting about, you know, the bridge analogy. Because you're literally, if you do it right, you understand what all those facets are, and you can engineer the perfect integration. Is what you're trying to? Because the perfect integration is where the where the ROI comes.
0: There you go. And and that's what PE has figured out. Uh, the partner that we use uh, in integration is a global. Um, integration consulting firm, and they do a a lot of work for PE firms. And PE firms, by the way, are getting great results from M&A, and they've they've figured out all these fumbles on the bridge, metaphorically, and and they've solved those problems by having experts like an integration consultant come on board and help them, and all these due diligence consultants help them at the right time, and they they've created those collaborative partnerships, and that's what we're doing at Watermark. We're creating a collaborative approach because it, it, you need people who know what they're doing to advise you as you step to that next part of the bridge. And
1: um, Pete's figured it out. Well, it's interesting, and I think some of them. I mean, I think they're still learning care because I had uh, I had lunch with Mike O'Neill, who I had on the podcast, and. Um, you know, he is about to to close a transaction, and literally, he's he's flying to the place. You know, normally where it's hey, you know, not, everything's as it is. This is a financial transaction. Like he's literally going, and they're having a barbecue, and they're like, they're integrating the people because it's mm-hmm. like, well, yeah. Duh. And he's like, I hope it's gonna work. I think I'm doing the right thing. I'm like for sure, dude. They they just want to know that they've got a friend because they're now partners with you. You know, and right, then, then right. he even said like. I don't want them to hide stuff for me. <laughs> you know, right. I, like I, he goes, I want them to like be okay telling me stuff and to respect me and feel bad about it, not just to like be manipulative about it. So it's it's a contract between people, man. It's so, right, right. And those yeah,
0: yeah. I was just gonna maybe I'll end with this. You know, sometimes those those kickoff parties can backfire, unfortunately, because the buyer has such a different culture than the seller. <laughs> right. they, they, they blow. They have this massive party, and the sellers, the kind of a conservative, they're tight on their budget. And they're like, "Oh my gosh, who has just bought us?" Because <laughs> That's a very good uh, one, and it, it backfires. So those parties right. can actually backfire when they don't think it. The buyer doesn't think it through well.
1: Well, It's even like that. One, you know, maybe there's an, a, a, run, a running company joke where like everybody loves it, but like, hey, different culture, they might absolutely hate it. I mean, it's yeah, that one joke just could <laughs> literally destroy something. Um, it, we talked about a lot and I, I love the, uh, the process even putting together. And, you know, if you want to, is there something that you want to highlight from the different uh, things we talked about? Or maybe if there's something that we might have not touched that you want to leave our listeners with? Just that it starts with education. And uh, so
0: we believe that you've got to learn about the bridge first. And that's, we believe, uh, is really one of the best first steps on the bridge is to learn what, what does this mean to do M and a, because it's it's such a fragmented market. Uh, there's meaning, there's so many providers of M and a services, uh, out there. And what I'd say is why not start with just education, learn, get smart about what, what does it mean to cross the bridge? What are the blocks or the steps that I need to take? And, uh, so we offer, uh, for buyers, we offer a five-day event for buyers, to, uh, really infrequent acquirers, to, to uh, have an immersion for five days. And we have a lot of our collaborative partners that teach that. And it's going to be in February next year, hosted by Clemson, their Center for Corporate Learning. And it's, uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can go to thinkclemson.com and look under programs in M&A for sellers. I teach it privately. Um, It's a half-day class that I teach, and I can break that up actually into video uh, meetings, and I can break it up into three meetings. Um, So for that, as a seller, to learn about M&A, you can call me or email me. Our phone number at Watermark Advisors is 864 527-5960. Five two seven five nine six zero. Visit us on the web or LinkedIn. We have a, a page on LinkedIn, but it's watermarkadvisors.com. And, um, you'll learn more. We have video videos, interviews, and a lot of clients and, uh, that we've worked with in the past, but, um, it's important to start to think about this as a seller. Like I said earlier, several years before you actually want to do the deal. That's, that's, that's the best step you can take is if you start to think about this well in advance.
1: Couldn't have said it better myself, Hagen. I uh, really
0: appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Enjoy talking about this. So thank you for having me. Hope I can come back again.
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Hagen. I think he had a lot of amazing pieces of input about understanding what's important to you. And that's why we're doing what we're doing at GEXP Collaborative because It's the biggest challenge that all of us entrepreneurs have is you've never done this before. You've never ran the race. You're an athlete and you're training for an event that you've never experienced before. So you have to have someone sitting there telling you what it's like to run it all the time. So when you actually go through that transaction or that transition, it's a non-event. So if you want to know more about how to determine what's important to you, go to our website, check out the five principles. There's five principles that really make a difference. And if you are aware of what are the five things that are really important to you when you exit, then you can put into context and then you can design the outcome that you actually want. You can actually go get it. So when you step out into that bridge, it's not a big deal. When that gun shoots and that race starts and you're that athlete, you've prepped for it and it's literally something that you've trained for and it's not a big deal because you knew exactly what you wanted and you have the team that wants to help you go get it. So Go check out the website, gxpcollaborative.com Check out the five principles. Check out the process because I really believe it'll bring context and clarity to what you're looking to do. And then if you actually want to go transact to a third party, looking at an investment banker like Hagen that understands what's going on before, during, and afterwards is super important because if you're going to have someone sit there with you, make sure they get it and make sure they're looking out for your greatest outcome because you've already done the hard work and you understand what you want. So I hope this was a really helpful episode. If there's anything you do, think about what's important to you and what do you want and what do you want that outcome to look like. Go on to iTunes, give me a rating. Otherwise, I will see you next week.